0: We are in Joshua chapter seven today, and so you turn there, or scroll there, or get there however you would get there. Uh, that would be uh, great. And uh, it's a longer passage, so we're gonna sort of read it as we go through. Um, it's a really important passage, and it doesn't strike you that way the first time uh, that you read it. So. Uh, We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, going through it carefully this morning. But before we do, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and uh, we need it as we always need it. Uh, Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a sad story of sin and its tragic consequences. It's the type of Bible story that we don't like very much. However, we find that uh, if we take it seriously and learn its lessons carefully, that we would find the hope that it points to. Thank you, today we're learning once again from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 7 this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, as we come to this chapter of Joshua 7, uh, we have to understand that verse 1 gives us something of an unfair advantage. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, Took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burns, burned against the people of Israel. So we now have an insight that Israel and Joshua don't have. It's like you're watching a disaster movie, almost any disaster movie, and you have this scene where they've taken you below ground and you see the plates of the earth crunching together and you think, oh no, this is going to be bad. And then there's this scene where this giant wave forms out at sea because of this earthquake. But then in the next scene, you see people just going about their business, completely oblivious to what's about to happen. They're shopping, they're playing with the family dog, they're eating dinner. And meanwhile, this wave keeps getting bigger and bigger, and the plates under the earth keep crunching together. And we see it happening. And we know the danger that's coming. But the ordinary people in the movie don't know. They can't see it coming. They can't see the danger. And of course, it eventually that giant wave arrives, destroys everything, disaster and death ensue on a grand scale, which is why it's called a disaster movie. That's pretty much what's going on here in Joshua chapter 7. Israel has been unfaithful, especially Achan. Now, it's spelled A-C-H-A-N, but it's pronounced Achan, like Achan, South Carolina. And so we see right there in verse 1, because of what Achan has done, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So how do we get here? Well, if you remember, Joshua 6 was about the fall of Jericho. And they got these strange instructions to march around the city a bunch of times, but they followed him faithfully, and the wall came down, and they went in, and the city was destroyed. And at the end of chapter 6, we read these words. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So we have this summary of Joshua 6. They made their first military expedition into the Promised Land with the conquest of Jericho. And everyone was destroyed except for Rahab and her family because she saved the spies back in chapter 2. And so we read of Israel's now living in obedience to God, the Lord's fulfilling his promises to his people, all is well with the world, at least that's what they think. And then we come to chapter 7, and there's a big but in verse 1. It says, but the people of the Lord broke faith in regard to the devoted things. We have just come from the high of the conquest of Jericho. And now we read that Israel did not keep God's word given to them in chapter 6. And so in this story, we're introduced to the concept of covenant responsibility. In other words the entire covenant community is responsible for the actions of its individual members. And while Achan is the actual perpetrator of the sin, Israel as a whole must pay the price for their disobedience and defeat. Verses 1 through 5, disobedience and defeat. And so if you have uh, printed out the bulletin or... Uh, the sermon outline, you that's the first blank for you. Verses 1-5. through five. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Now, it looks like a-I, but it's pronounced I. The A is silent. Which is near beth east of Bethel. And said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the, be- from the people, And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherevim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. This is the story of one man's sin that brought Israel a terrible defeat. Now, I began my last sermon by saying that the story of Joshua at the Battle of Jericho is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's something of an irony that this story, coming in the very next chapter, is hardly known at all. And yet, the two stories are closely connected. Now, I wrote to you earlier this week, if you get the weekly email. um, If you don't, see Andrea, we'll get it to you. This week, I wrote about ABC's Wide World of Sports. For those of you who can remember that, you need to be a little bit older. Um, But they had the signature tagline, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, if Joshua 6 is the thrill of victory, then Joshua 7 is the agony of defeat. Now, we like to hear a lot more about victory than defeat. But since these stories occur one after the other, we can't really pick and choose. And at this point in the story, remember Joshua and the people are still oblivious. They're going about their business without knowing that a disaster is looming. And we read verses 2 through 5, and it's like the first wave is about to hit. The Israelites have this straightforward battle strategy. They sent spies into Ai, The report came back. It looks like the battle will involve a relatively simple military strike. So simple, they don't have to send in the whole army. They send in an equivalent of a battalion. And then something happens that's definitely off script. They are defeated. And they're driven back, and 36 men are killed. Just imagine you know you're going to win. You're just sure you're going to win. And here's a man going up the hill, perhaps in pride, nevertheless expecting victory. And all of a sudden, an Amorite took a spear and thrust him through. And in the moments before his death, he must have been filled with the realization that something has gone terribly wrong. Achan thought he could hide his sin, But these 36 men knew when they were struck down. Something has gone wrong. And soon the whole camp knew that the blessing had stopped. This didn't fit with what God had told them. They must have felt like the rug had been pulled out from under them. If they were defeated by this relatively small city of Ai, what did that mean for the rest of their conquest of the promised land? Maybe this means there'll be more defeats. Maybe they should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. All of that doubt leads Joshua into dismay and lament. Dismay and lament, verses 6 through 9. Look at what he's lamenting here in verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? How does Joshua and the elders of Israel react to this discouraging turn of events? They tear their clothes, they fall on their face, they put dust on their heads, all classic signs of mourning in ancient Israel. Joshua and the elders are hurt and bewildered. They have gone from hope to despair in one day. And it sounds like Joshua is thrown completely off by this defeat. Remember, he doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know about Achan burying stuff under his tent. How is he supposed to know what's going on? And so in these verses, Joshua is complaining somewhat, but it's important to note he's complaining to God, not about God. God is big enough to handle it. Sometimes we think, you know, and especially in this past year, I'm so discouraged. Everything's out of whack. I don't know what's going on. I can't even complain to God. Yes, you can. He can handle it. Sometimes he's the only one who can handle it. And so Joshua does that. And at the end of Joshua's prayer, I think it's important to note that Joshua is concerned about the great and holy name of the Lord. He ends his prayer with, and what will you do for your great name? One commentary refers to this type of prayer as anguish prayer to a mystifying God, pleading both in the face of danger and for his honor. That's what Joshua is doing here. He's praying his anguish to a God whose ways are beyond our finite minds. Joshua is pleading in the face of danger, but with a concern for the glory of God. Now, I don't know if you ever find yourself in situations where you feel completely out of control or overwhelmed by events um, that you have no control over. I suspect you have, or you will. But it's comforting to know that even Joshua is in a situation that caused him to pray to God in his anguish, but also to beg God to bring honor to his name. Now, as most of you know, I planned these series out about a year in advance. And so I was struck by this prayer this week after the shooting in Atlanta. I've read a lot of posts about it. Was it caused by racism or sexism or sexual addiction or mental illness or sheer hatred of others and of self? And in these sorts of tragedies, I tend to take an all-of-the-above approach since particular sins rarely work in isolation. And it strikes me that all of these horrible sins came together in the commission of this heinous crime. However, I'm not convinced that figuring out the motivation for the shooting makes much difference for us. It probably makes a lot of difference for law enforcement and the legal system, but I'm not convinced it makes much difference for us. Because whatever the real reason, the real motivation, killing women is evil. Killing Asian Americans is evil. Killing anyone made in the image of God is evil. And so then it's incumbent upon us to decry evil, to lament evil, to mourn the victims of evil, and to mourn with those who mourn. And there's a lot of people mourning in our country. I've also seen articles blaming his church, and by extension, all conservative Christians. I've seen articles that blamed religious values, evangelicals, Baptists, and even all Reformed churches. Don't get me wrong. His church, and by extension, all churches, need to do some serious soul-searching as to how they missed what was going on in this guy's life. And yet, when the church is publicly criticized in writing for simply and primarily being the church, and we don't specifically know why it's being criticized, then people are both implicitly and explicitly blaming God. And what I haven't seen anywhere, and yes, maybe it's out there and I just missed it, have been any articles pleading for God to bring honor to his own name. People are blaming Christianity, and by doing that, they're bringing dishonor and disrespect to the name of Christ. And sometimes the criticism is over what we believe. And sometimes the criticism is over who we are. And sometimes the criticism is over who we may be associated with. And sometimes we just don't know what's behind the criticism. But in each and every one of those cases, we need to pray a lot. And I think our prayer should sound somewhat like Joshua's. With our primary concern not being for ourselves but for the glory of God. Joshua knew that. God knows that. And so God explains now how Israel took the devoted things and thus they became the devoted things. Meaning they became devoted to destruction. Look with me at verses 10 through 15. Devoted to destruction. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan the Lord, Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This chapter clearly demonstrates the necessity of obedience to success in taking the land Jericho is taken because Israel is obedient to God's uh, word, God's strategy, God's plan. And God's power is freely exercised in the midst of his holy people. But when Achan steals items consecrated to God, he mars the nation's purity. And a holy God dwells in the midst of a holy people. And so he can't remain with a defiled or unholy people or go with them to battle I Israel must remove the impurity for God to exercise his power on their behalf. And what we see here is obedience is a hard one. lesson. Setting the account early in the book emphasizes the centrality of this lesson for all that Israel wants to accomplish in the Promised Land. And it is a hard lesson. And to be honest... It's not that comforting when we read how God responds to this anguish prayer. Verse 10 reads harshly. Joshua is praying this prayer, and the Lord tells him, "Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Nobody wants that response when they pray out of anguish. And then look at what the Lord says about them, verses uh, 10 or 11 and 12. His words are going to reveal his anger towards Israel. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. And then he says what has to be some of the saddest words in the whole book of Joshua. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So why this harsh response? Why did they fail? It wasn't because they were complacent about the troops. It wasn't because they had gone in without committing to prayer. The real reason is they violated the Lord's covenant. And as much as we may struggle with what unfolds next, it's far more difficult for them. The Lord takes sin seriously. He doesn't want his people to be comfortable in their sin. Israel has sinned, and as a result, there's consequences for the whole nation. By taking items consecrated to God, Israel forfeits its holiness before God and is now therefore devoted to destruction, The route before uh, I is the fruit of that new status. God says, I will be with you no more. God's presence in the midst of a holy people has been the source of their success, of Israel's victory as shown at Jericho. And now Israel has promised that they cannot stand before their enemies. So further retreat, further defeat should be expected. And what can they do to turn things around? They have to root out. The sin among them. These verses describe in excruciating detail how Achan is revealed as the one who sinned. And Achan doesn't just come forward. He's fleshed out in a discovery of unfaithfulness. A discovery of unfaithfulness is verse 16 to 21. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And then he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So when Joshua goes to Achan, Look how he leads Achan out of the problem. He says, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. That's not what we would expect first. What we'd expect is for Joshua to come to him and say, Achan, you've brought us to the brink. Because of you, our lives are in danger. Because of you... 36 men died in a battle. We can't win. Because of you, sweet little babies have no fathers tonight. Because of you, young brides have no husbands tonight. Because of you, the people's hearts have been turned to water. Because of you, my leadership has lost credibility. Because of you, we're all in danger of being devastated as a nation. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is, you have robbed God of his glory. You have refused to give God his glory. You have robbed him of glory and have taken him lightly. You haven't given him your life. You haven't given him priority. Therefore, that's what you should be worrying about, not what you've done to us. The solution here is to look to God. To begin to see who he is, recognize what your sin is to God. And understand that God gets great glory when you say to him, I was wrong, you were right. God gets glory when we admit our sin. There's a reason we have a confession of faith in every service. God gets glory when we demonstrate that we love God's great name more than our own. His commands more than our convenience, His will more than the easy way out. That's what repentance is. In her book, the gospel comes with a house key. Rosario Butterfield, who used to go to this church, describes a difficult church discipline situation in their church in North Carolina. And she writes, repentance gives glory to God. Kent, that's her husband, who's the pastor of their church, uh, Kent reminded the congregation of this general biblical principle over and over again as we waded through the grief and shame of this church discipline situation. Kent continued to bring us back to Joshua seven nineteen. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Kent wanted us to see that repentance bears fruit, and even if we must pay the price for the sin, when we repent, we give God glory. Repentance always bears the fruit of giving glory to God. We repent unto holiness. In repentance, we grow in Christ's likeness We show that God is always right about matters of sin and grace, and our soul is refreshed and made ready to die well, even if, like Achan, die we must. So repentance refreshes the believer, gives glory to God, and bears Christian fruit. Repentance is a gift from God, for only believers can repent. You can find all that in her book. But repentance doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin. And corporate repentance doesn't necessarily remove the corporate consequences. Look at verses 22 through 26 and the corporate consequences. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day then the lord turned from his burning anger therefore to this day the name of that place is called the valley of a there are several things going on here and this is the really important part first there's the issue of the corporate consequences of sin it's not just achan who's executed but his whole family and everything he has. How is that justified? We think, I don't want to deal with this. This can't be part of God's word. It's shocking. It insults our Western sensibilities. But it raises the question, what do we find more shocking? The consequences that Achan and his family are executed or that Achan, having seen the mighty works and miracles of God, having heard specific instructions to keep away from the devoted things, otherwise you'll make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, deliberately disobeys what the Lord has clearly commanded. Which is more shocking? Which is, are we more horrified by? Well, I think for most of us, it's the consequences that we find shocking and harder to swallow than Achan's disobedience. And because we don't like the consequences, we assume it's not right. It's too harsh. So let's walk through the process again. Achan steals the sacred items, specifically prohibited by God, Joshua 6, verses 18 and 19. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted uh, them, you take any of the devoted things, and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. The instruction's pretty clear. There's nothing ambiguous about what the Lord is saying. Keep away from the devoted things so you will not bring about your own destruction. And yet Achan saw, he coveted, and he took. He took. However, it's all Israel that's charged with unfaithfulness, all the way back in verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. The corporate accountability reveals the unique character of the devoted things. Their presence within the camp infects the whole camp. You can almost hear Galatians 5 here. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now in Galatians, the problem was false teachers allowed into their midst. In 1 Corinthians 11, it's the failure to discern the church as the body of Christ at the Lord's Supper that brings judgment. 1 Corinthians 11.30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In 1 Corinthians 5, the leaven is the man involved in gross sexual immorality. And 1 Corinthians 5, 2 says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira kept the money that was promised to God, lied to God about it, and before the whole congregation were struck dead by the Holy Spirit and were carried out by the youth group. It's true, read it. It's all of those are a stark reminder of the holy nature of the church and the necessity of faithful living, dealing falsely with devoted things. Old Testament, New Testament now tarnishes the community and is met with judgment. The presence of sin within the camp infects the whole camp. Achan's introduced with full identification all the way back in verse 1. It's actually done about four times. Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. He's identified with four generations. It's the longest identification in the whole book of Joshua. And it sets the offender within these widening social contexts of family, clan, and tribe. And these widening circles suggest the culpability is shared by all of Israel, because it's the people of Israel who broke faith. Later, when all Israel seeks the identity of the perpetrator, the lots begin with the larger group and work down to the individual, leaving you with no doubt that Achan is part of all Israel. And the taking of the items dedicated to their God and their presence in the midst of Israel brings impurity on the whole people. Corporate sin is met with corporate punishment as the whole nation, verse 12, becomes devoted for destruction and falls before its enemies. And corporate sin can only be rectified by corporate action. And I can sort of feel the shock. Everyone's feeling this as we read this. But feeling that shock that this one man sin, and there was all these consequences for all these other people, not just his family who was executed, but those 36 men who died in the attack helps us to see, A, the seriousness of sin, and B, the reality of God's wrath. So that's the first thing of the important things in this chapter, the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's wrath. Second, Joshua 7 looks back to Joshua 2, because it raises the question, who is a true Israelite? And how is covenant-keeping expressed? If you remember, chapter 2 is about Rahab. Rahab, who embodies the pagan Canaanites with her immorality. She's an outsider by birth and profession, but she speaks and acts faithfully with covenant kindness, acknowledging the God of the covenant as if she was an ideal Israelite. Meantime, we have Achan, who embodies the heart of Israel. He comes from the same clan as King David. He's the ultimate covenant insider. And he acts unfaithfully as if he is the stereotypical Canaanite. Rahab gave glory to God and hid the spies in order to save them in Israel. Achan robs God of his glory, hides the devoted things in order to save them for himself. And by their choices, both Achan and Rahab secure the fate of both their families. But it's actually even a much bigger story than that. So we have the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's wrath. We have this contrast between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Somewhat choosing the wrong people. We wouldn't choose Rahab. We probably would have chosen Achan. But Achan's the unfaithful one and Rahab's the, faith, uh, the faithful one. But it's bigger. You remember the scarlet cord? In Joshua 2, Rahab hung a scarlet cord out of her window. It's not the first scarlet cord in the Bible. For that, you have to go back to Genesis 38 and the story of Tamar. In that passage, she gives birth to twins. Genesis 38, 28 to 30. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, Tamar had deceived Judah, got pregnant, and had two sons emerge from her womb, one with a scarlet cord. Rahab deceived the king of Jericho. Jericho actually means the city of palm trees, which in Hebrew is Tamar's. She deceives the king of the city of Tamar's. And two men emerged from her window, which was tied with a scarlet cord. Of Tamar's two sons, Zerah is identified as the firstborn who get the strength and blessing of Judah because he had the scarlet thread, even though Perez is actually born first. And later in Genesis 49, Judah is given the blessing of the kingdom, and we're basically led to believe that Israel's king would come from Judah by way of Zerah. Now, here in Joshua 7, he goes to great lengths to identify Achan as the great-great-grandson of Zara, the son of Tamar with the scarlet cord. Only Achan forsakes his birthright by stealing the devoted things. And Achan and all of his family is cut off and the execution of all of them transfers the promise of the kingdom from Zara back to Perez, who is the true firstborn. And this is where we come back to Rahab because Matthew 1.5 tells us that Rahab marries Salmon, the great-great-grandson of Perez, and so is brought into the line of David and is brought into the line of Christ, all of which is possible because Achan is cut off from the line of promise and Rahab is included, which means in this case, the corporate consequences of sin have an impact that lasts for generations and generations up until this day because they have a major effect on the history of redemption by excluding Achan and including Rahab. That's the real point of this story. But where do we find the gospel? The biblical story of Achan demonstrates the truth of Proverbs fifteen twenty seven. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. But he who hates bribes will live. That word troubles is really important. We've come across it a number of times, not just in Joshua 7, but several other of those supporting scriptures. And uh, so we, we see that here. And in Hebrew, this proverb begins with the verb, Okar, which means troubles, that it gave its name that that word gave its name to the valley near Jericho that witnessed this covenant breaking and this curse inflicted on Achan. Before their execution, Joshua pronounced an exchange of troubles, an exchange of Okar on Achan, verse 25. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones. It remains to this day. It is not a pretty picture. But it's one God intends for Israel to remember. Back in Joshua 4, Israel had placed memorial stones to commemorate the crossing of the Jordan River. It served as a memorial, Joshua 4.24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And the tragedy of Achan's memorial is it commemorates one who neglected to fear the Lord your God He violated God's holiness. And he's going to be remembered as a dark spot on Israel's identity. And the memorial nature of the stones over Achan is joined by his commemorative name because from now on the valley is known as the Valley of Trouble, the Valley of Accor. Later on in the genealogies in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Achan, the troubler of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted things. Achan the troubler trusted the silver and gold he could see more than he trusted the word of the Lord, the Lord who saw his heart from the very start. Who then can deliver us from the trouble we deserve? and can impart the life that we don't deserve? Who then can make the valley of Accor a door of hope? Wouldn't Achan have loved to have someone take that punishment for him? Especially when we read verse 26, the Lord turned from his burning anger. We need to feel the weight of that. Not just for Achan, but for us. Ephesians 2.3 says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And as we see that and we feel that, we begin to understand the cross. Sometimes we're just way too familiar with the cross. We know Jesus died for us. We're familiar with it so much that we forget why. And at the cross, we see God's anger burn against sin. At the cross, we see God's anger poured out on Jesus. What would it be like to have God's anger burn against you and burn against me? We get a glimpse of that here with Achan, and it helps us to understand the weight of sin and what Christ has done for us at the cross. The shadow of the cross hangs over this whole chapter. We know that because the concluding events take place in the Valley of Accor, This is not the only passage in the Bible where this valley is mentioned. The prophet Hosea prophesies about this place in the book of Hosea. The prophet reenacts Israel's covenant history by marrying a woman who turns to adultery with foreign nations and pagan gods. And after a time of punishment, Israel experiences once again God's love for his people. And Hosea utilizes this metaphor of marriage And now it's a marriage renewed and a love restored. And he says in Hosea 2, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This terrible valley of Accor, a place marked by Israel's disobedience, by failure and death, is now redeemed as a symbol of hope and restoration. Accor had been a place of desolation when Achan sinned, but God promised to bring Israel back to the land after the captivity, after the exile, and make that same valley a place of hope. He calls it a door of hope. The place where the Lord poured out his wrath on sin would become a place where God's people would find confidence in their standing before him. Now we need to move from trouble to hope. We need someone who can save us. Israel couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. The one whose anger burns against sin is the one who provides a way so that we can be saved. We are safe and secure in God's hand. We are not forsaken like Achan was. Why? Because we know the one who was forsaken. On the cross, Jesus cried out, you all know it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for you and me. He was raised to life as the first fruits for all who follow him. We are not forsaken because he was. Have you hidden some sin in your life? And I know it's just a little sin and it doesn't really matter, or does it? At the end of the day, there's only two things you can do with your sin. You can try to conceal it, which is a fruitless effort in the long run, or you can confess it. And if you're willing to acknowledge your sin and bring it to the cross, you will find a just and loving God who has already poured out his wrath on his son. And then we can be amazed by the grace with, with which we have been bought with a price. As 1 Peter 1 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, the stuff Achan took, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The holy anger towards sin that the Lord showed to Achan's family would be poured out on his own son once and for all so his wrath would be satisfied forever. To understand the glory of the work of christ on our behalf we can't look past the stories like this which show god's holy wrath on display we need to look deep in them because here is where we see what god redeems us from the lord didn't reconcile us by lowering his perfect standards of holiness he satisfied those standards with a substitute one who would live a perfect life in our place Die a sinner's death in our place. Defeat the power of the grave. And death had no claim on him giving us life in his name. And Christ can do that because he has the integrity we lack. And he gives it freely to all who humbly confess how compromised they are. He gives the wisdom we need to resist the pressures to sell ourselves cheaply. And by his grace we can lead our families out of the valley of trouble and there find an open door of hope, which no man can shut." Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Thank you for your patience today. I know I went a little long. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times we fail to obey because we see and we covet and we take. And we think you don't see us. How foolish we are. We forget that when we disobey, we dishonor your name. And when we dishonor your name, we rob your glory. So, Lord, help us to be people who are quick to confess, quick to restore, and quick to bring honor to your great name. Forgive us, O Lord, for our failures to obey your word. Forgive us for our failures to believe your word. Forgive us for our failures to honor you and work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua, as we learn to give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Help us to be strong and courageous not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and through the book of Joshua. Draw us ever closer to the one who on the cross took the wrath we deserved, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.